All right. Now we're off and running. So um, thanks for yeah, Tom Campbell. Thank you so much for the time again. Last time we we chatted, we basically got into the the overarching premise of of the of the theory of everything. But um, with this, I guess. Continual interview. I wanted to give a little bit deeper uh, dive into not only the theory behind it, but also some of the um, some of your experiences that I found in your book that were kind of fascinating. And I wanted to kind of take you back to to the very beginning um, and um, your just experience. And I'm sure this will be a funny story with the with the handkerchief and the banana when you first went into your uh, experience for um your first transcendental meditation and um and talk about that briefly and then we can we can kind of go from there because I wanted to ask you some questions about the uh, uh metaphysics um and and different facets of the universe and see if we can kind of boil this down for people so uh we'll start out with a handkerchief and the banana as odd as that may seem it'll be it'll be fun yeah well that was uh you know we're probably back about 1970 um yeah, we're probably 1970 then. Uh, it was around the date, and uh, I was in graduate school in physics, working on a thesis, and I saw this ad for transcendental meditation, and it promised that you could get by with less sleep. Mm-hmm. You know that it had health benefits. You were more relaxed, uh, lower blood pressure, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All these good uh, things, and it seemed to have quote some good science to back it up. So I thought, well, good idea, I'll go do that. So at this point, I'm your typical young physicist um, with a, uh, what we call a, um, a philosophy that says that if you can't measure it, it either doesn't exist or it really isn't important. Right. You know, it's irrelevant, one of, one of those two. It's called an operational definition of, of reality. If you can't do an operation on it, then uh, we're not concerned with it. It's insignificant. So that was kind of where I was, and I wanted to make sure that uh, if I did this transcendental meditation thing, it uh, it was real. You know, I was going to get some benefit from it, and it wasn't uh, a bunch of baloney. So I was told to show up at a, at a particular place at a particular time for the initiation into this, and at that time I would be given a, a mantra. And already I didn't like the sound of it. Why don't you just, you know, give me my mantra now. You know, you got my 25 bucks. Give me my mantra. I'll go see if it works, you know, sort of thing. What do you mean initiation? You know, what's all that? So I already had a little edge on, you know, when, when I show up at this place with uh, my handkerchief. And they said uh, an offering. And they suggested an offering could be a piece of fruit or anything you really wanted to, to give. So I, uh, you know, I plucked up a banana. And, uh, and a clean white handkerchief, which was hard to find because as a graduate student, I didn't dress in a way that required handkerchiefs, you know. So uh, that was more of a challenge than the banana. And uh, so I go to this place, and as I walk in, there maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 people standing around, a fair number of people. It was, it was a small house in a residential neighborhood, and... Uh, there were just a lot of people hanging around inside the house, and nobody said said anything, you know. And here I am holding my hanky and my banana, you know, feeling a little bit like an idiot, you know. I just want to do this thing that's going to give me, you know, some energy, less sleep, et cetera, et cetera. And what does that have to do with, you know, offerings and a handkerchief? You know, the bananas all seem so superfluous as to be ridiculous. So I've 
I've uh, got a little bit of a chip on my shoulder in the sense that uh, I don't like doing things that are uh, ridiculous, uh, being a scientist and all. And uh, so I look around, and everybody's standing around uh, kind of sheepish. And so I asked, I said, well, hey, you know, what is... You know, what, what does fruit have to do with, uh, you know, with meditation? And uh, people looked at me like, you know, what's the matter with this guy, you know? But I didn't get it, you know, and I was a pretty forward person, so I asked a couple of times, and nobody would say anything to me, so then I just thought, well, I'll just wait in line here, and, and I'll go through this thing, you know, if this is what they want to do. So I did. It finally came to be my turn, and I went in, and, and uh, there was a guy in there who was doing the initiations, and he was um, knelt down in front of a, um, well, you could call it an altar, but it really wasn't an altar. We were on the floor of his kitchen, you know, something like that. It was a small house, and uh, he had this cloth laid out, and uh, he asked for the banana, you know, and I gave him the banana. And uh, they asked me to, you know, kneel down beside him. He was going to go through a ritual. And I kind of balked immediately, you know, because I wasn't up for this. I was up for the science they talked about in the article that I read that said, you know, come do the, you know, learn how to do this meditation. Mm -hmm. So I asked him, I said, well, you know, what, uh, you know, what are you doing here? What, why do we need the ritual? You know, you didn't say anything about rituals in, in, your, uh, in your advertisement. And he told me, he said, well, is it just... You know, humor me. You don't have to do anything with it. You don't have to believe anything. You don't have to say anything. It's just something that I have been taught to go through. You know, as we give you this mantra, you know, we go, have to go through this initiation. So, you know, it's nothing about you. It's all about me and, and you know, what, what we do. You're just going to get a mantra and go off and, and do your own thing. So I said, okay. So I get down on my knees next to him, and I hand him the banana, and I think, what are you going to do with all these bananas, you know, with all, with all this fruit? You know, and he looked at me and had a little smile on his face, and he says, well, we eat it. You know, and I thought, oh, well, sure, I get it, you know. Um, you know, this is, this is lunch and breakfast. Okay, I get it. I don't mind. I'll give you a little banana. That seems fair enough if you're going to, you know, do this thing for me. You probably deserve at least a banana and $25. The going price at the time was something like 80 or 90 or $100 for, for uh um, people who were not students, but there was a uh, a special on for students at 25 bucks. So I was already getting in at about a quarter of the price. So I thought a banana was probably a pretty fair tip. So anyway, he, we went through this thing, and he, he said his words and, and whatever, gave me a mantra, and sent me out to practice it so that I wouldn't forget it. He gave it to me, and then he said, well, repeat it a couple of times out loud. So I did, and he said, okay, you've you've got it. Now go outside and, and practice it for 15 minutes, and then free to go. You know, just go, and we'll have another meeting in a week, and we'll discuss, you know, how you've been doing and seeing if there's any problems and that sort of thing, and we'll have maybe, you know, two or three, four meetings, and then you're on your own. Mm -hmm. So I said, all right, good enough, you know, fair enough. So I went out, and I sat down, and I did what he said. You know, I sat someplace, closed my eyes, and... Uh, and, you know, there's other people like that, too. There's still people standing around waiting to go in the front end, but there was also, you know, just seven or eight, ten people sitting down with their eyes closed places. So I just found a corner, leaned up against the wall, and closed my eyes. And before I knew it, you know, I thought maybe a minute or two had passed, and I found out, like, uh, you know, 45 minutes had passed. You know, a lot of time had passed. I'd been there a very long time and lost consciousness through it, although I thought I was entirely 
conscious. As far as I knew, I just sat down there, closed my eyes, started to say my mantra, and then two or three minutes went by, and because of a little commotion of people coming and going in the room, I glanced at my watch and 45 minutes had gone, you know, so I was like, whoa, wait, you know, what happened to the last, you know, 40 minutes? All right, I'll give it five on the outside, but where would the last 40 go? And uh, that was a big mystery. So uh, that, uh, that was my introduction to meditation. So before then, I had not done anything like that, had not meditated, had not read any books or anything else, I had no knowledge whatsoever of um, you know, meditation, Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy. I was a physicist. You know, if you can't measure it, you know, it isn't important. So that's kind of my initiation into, you know, awareness of consciousness and awareness of, say, a larger, a larger reality. Sure, but I, I put the story in the book because it is kind of a funny story, but it yeah. shows pretty much where I was coming from mm -hmm. and the kind of mindset that I had and... Uh, you know, I haven't really changed that mindset much. I'm still, a, you know, a hard person to convince, and it still needs to have good, solid logic, you know, before I, uh, you know, before I'm willing to to go there. Sure. But uh, so that's all the same. <laughs> My sense of the of the reality and how large and broad and deep it is has changed immensely, you know, since that since that time. So once you experienced that, did you on your on your way home? How did it? Did it plague you? I mean, you touched on it briefly, but what was the what was the mindset after you left that? Was it just something that you figured you might have, you know, just slipped off and taken a nap, or was that something that really plagued your subconscious and saying, what really did happen right there? Is this is this part of what I've been missing, so to speak? Yeah, it didn't plague me in the sense that I was anyway worried about it, but I did know that something strange, something odd had happened, mm -hmm. because no, I didn't fall asleep, I knew that, because, you know, as a graduate student, you're tired a lot of the time anyway, because particularly doing research, and you get with the big guy, I was working with a uh, low energy accelerator, mm -hmm. and once you get experiments running, you just run with them until they go, so you may be up for one or two or three days, you know, running experiments, and of course, there's always more to do than there's time to do it in. So being tired was one of the reasons that I was interested in the first place. You know, sure, it's yeah. advertised that uh, you get by with less sleep. Mm -hmm. But I didn't happen to be tired that day. I'd gotten a good night's sleep. Yeah. I didn't feel like I had ever lost consciousness. Uh, I was leaning up against the wall. If I'd have lost consciousness, I probably would have you know, slumped over on the floor or something else. So I know that my conscious awareness only saw a few minutes go by, yet, you know, 40 minutes more went by without me knowing anything about it. So I just kind of thought, well, that's kind of odd. Something, you know, I've done this strange thing, which is this meditation. For a young physicist, that's a strange thing. Sure. And something really strange happened. Mm -hmm. You know, I had this very strange experience, and mine was very uh, much open, said, well, that's interesting. I wonder what's going to happen next. <laughs> you know, I'm, I was very open-minded. Right. It wasn't uh, at all disbelieving when I went into this. It's just that I uh, hadn't any information to, uh, you know, to, to let me know what it was about or how it would work. So I was really uh, pleased in a way. Mm -hmm. I had done this strange thing, and a very strange thing happened. And I was kind of, uh, um, you might say, excited or at least uh, very open to see, well, what else is going to happen? You know, sure. what's going to happen next? So that took you from a strictly analytical measuring, weighing, um, seeing, touching, believing uh, sort of mindset to perhaps 
expanding your horizons and by and by reading your book, it seems like that you're you're much like myself. You're very skeptical in the in the on the outset, just uh, skeptical in in general about how things work and 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 the way that things work. So did this <clears throat> this add to your paradigm, or did it take your paradigm to some place that you never you never thought it could go as as somebody that measures, like you said, um, the operational definition of of yeah. reality? Did it take you into well, a, a different mindset? Well, that experience by itself didn't didn't uh, do anything more than open me up to possibilities that there was something going on here that I didn't understand or didn't know, and I just needed more data. I needed more information. So I was looking forward to practicing the meditation right. and, to, and to going to the, the meetings or whatever and seeing, you know, where does this lead? Right. It, it, uh, had nothing special at all happened, it would have been, yeah, right, banana, hanky, right. magic word, okay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Nothing really happened, but it did. Something very dramatic uh, out of the, you know, something I'd never experienced before happened. Mm -hmm. So now it was like, well, okay, let's see where this thing goes. You know, this is interesting. We've got, we've got new information here. So I was entirely open as to where it might lead. And the fact that something strange happened was just, uh, was very good. I was very pleased that uh, it looked like maybe it would go someplace interesting. Now, were people in the scientific community your colleagues? Did you did you share your experience of what you were going through with them, and did they take part in some of these experiments, or did they kind of brush them off? Or I don't know how tight the tight the group was that you were working with or doing experiments with, or if you were just doing them as a um, as a solo mission up there. So how did that kind of pan out? Well, it was yeah the the work that I was doing. I was working with other graduate students and. Uh, you know, I was on a kind of a research team under a major professor and that sort of thing. But sure. um, no, I didn't talk about it. It was it was my experience, okay. and I didn't feel that it would have meant anything particularly significant to anybody else. And the reason for that is very likely that if somebody had come and told me that, it wouldn't have been a thing to me. It would have been, yeah, okay, you had an experience. Who knows? You know, you you hallucinated it. You know, you fell asleep and. Lost time, well, that could probably happen, and I just would have kind of written it off as, eh, okay, people experience things that are strange, all kinds of reasons for that that are hard to, are hard to specify, and it wouldn't have meant much, so I just would have kind of brushed it off and gone on. But when it's your own experience, then you don't brush it off. It's like, wow, this is neat. Let's see where this thing goes. I, I was kind of, you know, excited to follow it up and, 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 uh, and see what else would happen. Would indeed it do the things that it said it it would do? Sure. And as you as you progressed, and um, this really does tie into um, the things that I was reading in your book, the the subjective element of reality and the and the larger consciousness system. I think that that's very important. We should get into that. So this was once again, I, I guess, the the door opening for you and you actually walking through the door. Do you think that? That people when I, I don't want to speculate, but people from a scientific perspective, if they did experience something like this, whether it was uh, after a horrific car crash and they had an out-of-body experience or something like that where they did um, lose consciousness technically but could still have conscious awareness, do you think that they would um, would write it off or do you think that they would explore it? What, what would, you, um, would, you, would you say that you're an exception to the rule or you're a, a rule in and of itself and that Typically, people are going to measure, analyze, and grab any kind of information they can in order to understand the reality frame that we live in. Well, partly was the way I, the way I got into it was the fact this was something I did on purpose. 
and it actually had an effect. Sure. So I saw a result. You see, right. I did something, okay. I tried to meditate, I got a result from right. it. So Scientific. this kind of, you know, we'll take, take the next step, right? Sure. I mean, it would be kind of foolish to say, you know, oh, I, I'm, I'm done, you know. Well, what was the point of even starting if you weren't going to, you know, at least follow up and see where, where it went? Sure. And I immediately got the idea that it might come, go someplace really interesting because right. I had this interesting experience. So I was very much uh, interested in going on with it. Now, I think some people, probably if you were more right-brained and you had a, near-death experience or something like that, you would probably take it in as a whole, the whole thing in, and it would be significant to you, and it may then egg you on to find out more about it. Had anybody else felt this, and what did it mean, and what were the circumstances of other people's experiences, and how did it fit with yours? But if you were less, as left brain as I was, and something like that happened, you probably would have, would have brushed it off as an artifact of the uh, anesthesia. Sure. You know, we know anesthesia does all kinds of, you know, funny tricks with, mm -hmm. with minds, you know. It's, mm -hmm. it, uh, so it could have been an artifact of the anesthesia, it could have been a dream, it could have been anything, and you would have said, well, that was interesting, but there's nothing really to grab hold of there. Sure. You know? But I had something to grab hold of. Right. I was just beginning a whole new process of meditation. Mm -hmm. And I knew there was a step two and a step three, which is practice this thing for a month or two or three is what they said. Uh, after a couple of months of practice, you'd find that you could see a, a, a very noticeable, if not dramatic, difference you know, in yourself, in your perception, in how much sleep you needed, your energy level. So uh, I was enthusiastic to follow it up. Mm -hmm. Follow the directions, do, you know, do uh, what they said as long as I didn't have to, you know... Uh, swear to, you know, love some old guy with a long white beard in India or something like that. You know, as long as there wasn't any of that malarkey in it, then I was open to this, follow this thing and see how far it goes. And as long as it was interesting, I was going to pursue it. But as soon as it got to a dead end and, well, nothing happened or I didn't find anything, then I would have dropped it and said, well, you know, don't know, but it didn't, didn't really mean anything to me. So I think a lot of people, particularly very left-brained people, would have blown it off if they, if they didn't have it presented to them in a way that there was a natural follow-up, you know, what to do about it next. Right. Otherwise, you just say, well, strange things do happen, you know. The mind is, is kind of a unknown territory in a way. We know you take anesthesia or drugs and things, and your mind can come up with all kinds of, uh, you know, hallucinations and tricks and thoughts. And so if that just happened, a, a near-death experience, I probably would have blown it off too. Right. You know, but as it, as it is, I, uh, I embraced it. I said, great, let's go, I'm excited, what, what is going to happen next? So you, and, you approached it as a scientist in, in saying that here's the, here's the cause, here's the effect and the solution, so that, or the experiment actually did have an effect, so there has to be something involved with the experiment itself, so you took it a step further. And, uh, and I found it interesting that you said that you could get into a deep meditative state almost uh, fairly quickly, and and I, I, I want, and also the part that made me laugh was you almost falling out of the chair. But that's a story yeah. in and of it. That, that was true because that was the first time I had ever tried to meditate. I had a, didn't even know what meditation was as I walked into that. You know, it was just uh, you know a thing to try, mm -hmm. and something very strange happened that I knew wasn't me falling asleep. I knew you know that I was there. I was conscious, but the time disappeared somehow. Mm -hmm. So that was weird. So when I go to the, so that was my very first try to meditate. Mm -hmm. um, that was a pretty deep meditation. Then 
the first meeting we had, the guy asked us if we had questions. He told us a little bit about technique and what to not worry about, and, you know, just the details, kind of the mechanics of the thing. Uh, and uh, then he said, well, let's all, you know, practice now. We'll do it for, you know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes or something like that. And then he would let us then ask additional questions if we had any after we had this experience together. So the very second time I tried to meditate, a similar thing kind of, you know, sort of happened. Except not sitting on the floor, leaning up against the wall, I was sitting in a chair, you know. And within, you know, I don't know, 30 seconds, I was gone. You know, I just was, was uh, no longer in this reality frame. I left the reality, that's what I did before. I, I left the reality frame. Oh, we've got a little dog action here. <laughs> It's all right. You'll probably hear baby action behind me sometime, yeah. so don't worry about it. Yeah, continue. Huh. Okay. So let's see. Uh, so I had I had no expectations, but the very second time I I, I um, tried to meditate, mm -hmm. I had a similar experience where I exited this reality frame entirely. So I was no longer attached to this reality frame, mm -hmm. and I just disappeared into the the void. Sure. I didn't thought I didn't think that I lost consciousness. I was perfectly aware. I was what I call in point consciousness. I was a point of consciousness floating in the void. And that means that you don't have any physical sense experience. You don't see, hear, smell, feel anything. You don't even know you're in a chair. You know, you, you don't feel anything. You're just a point of consciousness floating in a void. And that's what I was and it only took me seconds, you know, to get there. And then suddenly, you know, I hear this voice, all right, everybody come back. You know, and it's like, come back. You know, we just started. You know, it's, we've only been doing this for, you know, like, uh, you know, a minute or two minutes. Right. What do you mean come back? And then I thought, oh, you know, I had, I had almost fallen out of my chair once. And as my body started to fall over, you know, I, I jerked myself back into the chair. And I thought maybe that's why he was having everybody come back. So I felt like maybe I'd ruined it for everyone else because, <laughs> you know, People are going to fall out of their chairs, and now he wants to tell us about how you have to prop yourself up so that doesn't happen or something. But no, he just went on like, you know, didn't have anything at all to do with me. And then again, I found out that it had been, you know, whatever it was supposed to be, the 15, 20 minutes or whatever he said. And so that was, the, so that was two for two. I tried to meditate twice. Both times, within seconds, I was a point of consciousness floating in the void. Now, I wouldn't have described it necessarily that way then, but that's kind of the, the description that I, that I give it now. Mm -hmm. So then I was, you know, doubly uh, uh, interested in pursuing it further because this was something that was, that was a state of my consciousness I had never experienced before. Mm -hmm. So now I was experiencing something very unusual, another part of my mind that, uh, that had never happened, you know, experience I'd never had before. And then I did meditate as he said, twice a day for 20 minutes each day. Mm -hmm. And I got to where I didn't, you know, fall out of things. I'd make sure I got set to a place that wouldn't happen. But I got to then time to play with the state a little bit and to explore it. Because being a, an experimental scientist, that's what I do. You know, if you run into something that's you're not quite, you know, that's new, you explore it. Sure. You start taking data. You start investigating. And that's what I did. And eventually, probably about three or four months later, I found out that I could use it to debug computer code, mm -hmm. and I could just roll up the computer code in my head. I could watch the uh, you know the printouts go by, and it was it would show me the lines that that were poor, that were causing the problems, 
with the with the computer, and then I'd go, you know, the next day or something, or later that day, I'd go check out that line of code, and sure enough, what I had seen was exactly what the problems were. So it was showing me something real, and it was showing me those things with an tenth of the amount of time that it would have actually taken me to find those errors manually, you know, thinking about it, going through the code, because errors in those days were very subtle. This was back in the old days of punch cards, and there were lots of lots of things could go wrong. And a computer runs. It's not like now when you when you write code these days, you you make your fixes, you punch a button, it runs. Thirty seconds later, you get the results, and you get all this nice error code out that tells you you know what went wrong and where it was and the rest of it. In those days, if you were lucky, you'd get two runs in a week. Wow. And that was it. Not not one you know thirty seconds after you were done making your changes, you'd have to wait for a week, or maybe like I could say sometimes you get two in a week. But the computer center was a computer that took up, you know, two or three large rooms mm -hmm. and it was only about probably a tenth as fast as our desktops are today. <laughs> and, you know, this was, like I said, it's 1970. Sure. And uh, everybody in the whole university had to use that one computer wow. center. There were no such thing as personal computers or desktops or laptops or any other thing like that. There was this one big, probably, you know, two or three million dollar computer that, that ran all the computer work for the entire university. Right. So it was busy. And because it was slow compared to today, you know, your, your, your processing, you had to go get in line, get in the queue. So you'd submit a job and they'd say, you know, come back, you know, you'd submit a job on Monday, they'd say, come back Thursday, maybe it'll be done. So you see, if you, if you were debugging code, which could be just that the key punch, that, that punched the little holes in the cards was misaligned by a hair. Uh, that might be your problem. You see, it, it might, might not, not even be any of your statements. statements. Mm -hmm. So there were lots of things that could go wrong, but if you you didn't have a semicolon at the end of the statement, you see, then it bombs. Right. And there wasn't this nice stuff that said statement number such and such is missing the semicolon. You know, we didn't get that. It just bombs and said, sorry, it didn't work. You know, that's basically all you get. So anyway, it was it's one of these things that in those days you spent a lot of time going over and over and over your, your code to find errors. These days, you just cut and try. Sure. Make a change, see if it works. Make right. a change, see if it works. And because that's just seconds worth of turnaround and you get a hundred of these chances every day, mm -hmm. you know, you cut and try. In those days, you spent days and days and days studying the code to find an error. Wow. Because if uh, if it took you if every error you if every semicolon that was missing took you a week to fix, you can see, you know, I had uh, I have four boxes of cards, mm -hmm. so I had uh, I don't know how many thousands of statements that was, but you know if you write code, it's hard to write you know say thirty thousand lines of code and not have any errors. Right. Very hard to do that. Mm -hmm. So we had to spend many, many hours looking for errors, checking, rechecking, you know, double checking, triple checking, because it was just not a very efficient process. Sure. And, uh, and anyway, that was it. So you can see what a great advantage it was to sit down in a meditation state and be able to pick out all the errors in your code in five minutes, mm -hmm. as opposed to spending five weeks trying to debug that same amount of that same amount of code, or maybe six weeks or a month, you see. So right. this wasn't just a small thing that I could find the errors in my code at that time. It was a very big thing, and it convinced me 
that I had something really real, that my operational definition of reality was very limited, mm -hmm. and that there was another whole part of reality that I knew nothing about. And it's almost like when the Europeans finally landed, you know, in the Americas. It's like there was another whole part of the world that they didn't know anything about. It's like, geez, you know, we've been living here for the last 4,000 years, and, you know, we have no idea this place exists. Sure. So it was, it was suddenly a, a real big expansion of my reality. So that was the, that was the, the thing that you're referring to, you know, and, and uh, going through this process. So within three or four months, I went from, eh, I might give this a try, you know, can't hurt. And I hope they don't do anything too, you know, too uh, weird or, you know, whatever. I'm not up to that. To, wow, you know, there's this, there's this much larger component, much larger dimension to reality that I never knew existed. Well, being a physicist, what we do is model reality, and I immediately had this desire, how does it work? Right. What else can I do? Right. What are the limitations? Why is it that I can do that? What allows me to, you know, to debug code? Mm -hmm. And from that point on, I was very curious and interested to continue my meditation, to see what I could do, and so on. And now I had only been doing that for about three or four months. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe more now, maybe six months or so. When I finally, I, you know, left graduate school, got a job, found out about Bob Monroe from my boss, and went out to see Bob Monroe, who then says, does anybody here want to help me study consciousness in this new lab I've got, you know? So, of course, I said, absolutely me. I want to do that because I was already in the, in the mode of, how does this work? What's going on? I know there's something real here. So everything, I was at the right place at the right time, you see, and everything just connected perfectly. And so that's kind of how I got from a hard-headed, uh, you know, uh, uh, left-brain physicist, you know, to uh, a right-brain and left-brain. You know, now both of those, my hemispheres, you know, are completely, you know, functional. It's not a one or the other. They're both working together. So that's the, that was kind of my introduction to consciousness as a physicist. That's really interesting that you say that because it's one of the things that I talk about on my on my show a lot is the the synthesis of the left brain thinking and the right brain thinking because in modern society, especially in America, it's very right brain dominant. And so in order to have the synthesis to... Left, left brain dominant, you mean? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Yeah, very left brain dominant. Sure. So we have the we have the synthesis that we need to create with our with our um, with our reality frame and also the way that we think and the way that we comprehend statements that are made, whether they're declarative statements and analyze the grammar, logic, and rhetoric behind statements to make sure that they are actual facts and it's not just declarative statements because in the English language those are used to create logical facts and lead people down a path of of um of disinformation or misinformation. So the the thing that I wanted to get back to I thought was very um interesting when I was reading through it was the just the encounter with you as you were talking about Bob Monroe, the encounter you had with uh, yourself and Dennis and and you trying to get back in touch with Bob Monroe and he made that declarative or the um the time and and statement to you, "Hey, why don't you guys come up here on Thursday?" And what I mm -hmm. thought was very interesting was what you documented in your book that are uh, you go ahead and tell the story about um I guess the introduction to Bob Monroe, yourself and Dennis, and and the conversation that it took you a few weeks to get a hold of Mr. Monroe, and mm -hmm. then the conversation that ensued from there, and and how that all kind of 
um, well, for me, it, it wrapped everything in a nice round bow, showing showing the connection that we have as individual nodes to a larger consciousness system. Well, okay. Uh, um, my boss, my first job, uh, he introduced me to Bob's book. Uh-huh. I read it, mm-hmm. and uh, he asked me, well, and, and the reason he asked me to read it is he wanted to know what my take was. I was a physicist. You know, here's this book about out of body. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, so... Uh, I'm wondering, you know, I've been in school all my life, you know, what's, what's the right answer here? Mm-hmm. But uh, there didn't seem to be a right answer, so I gave him just my answer, which, which was, was, well, if this is true, and now my mind, because of my meditation, was open enough that I could start with that, if this is true, you know, because I knew that there was some strange things that, you know, that you could do in consciousness, because I'd done some of them. Sure. And uh, if this is true, then wow, you know, it's, a, it's really a, another whole avenue because I wasn't out roaming around in my consciousness. I was just floating in point consciousness and mm-hmm. being able to do code and a few other things like that. So, uh, you know, he agreed that uh, if it was true, it was a big wow, but how could you tell? I mean, you read a book, you know, how do you know? Maybe this guy just thinks it's, you know, is telling the story. Maybe he just wants to make money with a book that mm-hmm. is... Is gee whiz that people will buy? You really don't know. So I was very skeptical, as I, you know, always am. And uh, we went out to see Bob Monroe. Turns out he didn't live that far away from from where I worked, and uh, he was only maybe 45 minutes to an hour away. So I went out to see him myself and probably I don't know 10 or 15 other people from the place where I worked. Evidently, the book had been passed around amongst the people that worked there for some time. I was just kind of on the end of that, you know, and got got handed to me. Uh-huh. So, in any case, uh, we went out to see Bob, and uh, my measure of, the, of him and his circumstances and the rest of it was that he was a serious guy who did very much want to make his experiences scientific. He wanted, pe- he wanted to understand them. He, right. you know, he had already had them, couldn't not have them, um, you know, couldn't run away from them, so he decided to play with them. He wrote the book, and now he wanted to to understand them. Why did he have them? What did it mean? You know, could other people do this or was it just him, et cetera? He wanted to make some sense out of it. And my sense of the man was that he was in his nature. Um, he, he probably, uh, if I had to categorize him in, in uh, types, I would have said he, he had an engineer's mindset. Okay. He also was very left brain and wanted to find out how and why and do some serious research. So he had built this lab to study consciousness, and it was a very much a build it and they will come sort of thing. He really didn't know what he was going to do with it when he got it done, but he knew that's what he had to do. That was next step for him, so he did that. And here we were, and uh, all of us in this group uh, were scientists and engineers of some sort, so he kind of looked at us and said, he took us up to his lab and uh, said that uh, he just was finishing building this, and since we were all engineers and scientists, would any of us be interested in working, you know, in his lab studying uh, consciousness? Mm-hmm. And uh, he made it clear that it wasn't that he was going to pay us lots of money because he didn't want us to be doing it for the money. He wanted us to be doing it because we really were interested. Sure. So he said, would you do that? And uh, I immediately volunteered, and so did a friend of mine, Dennis Menerick. Mm-hmm. I was a physicist. Dennis was a, was a double E, mm-hmm. uh, electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. So... Bob kind of looked around. He was, you know, we were both young. You know, we were in our 20s and uh, probably middle, well, late 20s, both of us. And uh, 
Bob kind of looked around. You know, is there anybody else other than these kids, you know, that really would like to do this? But nobody else was going to take him up on it, so he was stuck with the kids. And, uh, I mean, he was looking for somebody with a little more, uh, uh, you know, scientific credibility, you know, somebody that had been in the field for years and had to build up a name and a reputation and papers published. And, right. you know, he was looking for a little more of that. Right. And uh, what he got was two kids shortly out of graduate school mm-hmm. who were very interested and, uh, and nobody else. So we made a quick deal and said, okay, uh, you know, come on out to the lab, you know, give me a call. He had business he had to do. He was going to be out of town for a little bit, I think. Uh, and he said, call me up and, uh, you know, we'll make some arrangements and, and uh, great. So we waited the time and then I went to call him up. Mm-hmm. So I called him up, but the phone number I had didn't work. You know, it wasn't, it didn't seem to be right. And uh, the number was something that Bob or, or uh, somebody else had scribbled down for me because I didn't, I didn't walk around with pencil and paper. Uh, I was never prepared for anything like that. So uh, somebody else had the pen, you know, one of the ladies, I'm sure, was carrying a purse that had a piece of paper and a pen or something, and she wrote it down and handed it to me. And I couldn't exactly read exactly what the numbers were. So I tried it as many different ways as I could, and I mostly got no answer. Mm-hmm. Then just about the time I'm ready to give up and say, well, you know, I just don't have the number. I'm going to have to try something else. I'm going to have to go back there. I knew where he lived now, you know, and I was going to have to do something else. But about the time I'd given up on this, you know, I did get an answer. Mm-hmm. And I asked to speak to, uh, to Bob, and uh, I did get him on the phone. So I tried... You know, I said, well, Bob, this is uh, Tom Campbell, and uh, I'm calling about, uh, you know, saying up arrangements to come out. And it was sort of like, well, who are you? Who'd you say you were? <laughs> and I said, well, Tom Campbell, physicist. And he said, physicist? What kind of physicist are you? And I thought, well, this guy just doesn't, you know, he seemed like he was very excited about getting somebody to come work with him. And then it sounded like he didn't even remember, you know, that we were there. So I went back and explained to him that we were, uh, you know, it was... But he had talked to us, we sat on his deck, you know, a group of people visited him, and he asked for volunteers, and we volunteered, and he told us to call, and here I am calling, and it was Dennis and I who had to come out, and, you know, and he goes, oh, yeah, okay, you know, he didn't sound too excited about that either, you know, it's like, yeah, all right, uh, okay, he says, well, come out, you know, like, next, whatever, gave us a day, you know, come out at 7 o'clock next Tuesday or something, I don't remember now, but, uh, so I said, well, uh, I can come out then, but I don't know whether Dennis can come out then or not. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, yeah, just, just come on out then, you know. And I go, what? <laughs> and now I started to wonder, you know, is this guy all together or is he, you know, is he kind of loose? Right. Is he not, you know, is his mind not really, uh, you know, attached? So I started to wonder, you know, about what this is going to turn out to be. But, you know, I'm open. I'm going to, I'll try anything, you know, let's see how it works and then judge it later. I'm not going to judge it first. So I go in and I talk to Dennis and I said, well, I finally got through to Bob and uh, he said we should come out such and such a time. Can you make it? And Dennis said, well, you know, right up until just a little while ago, I would have had to say no. I had something else, but it just canceled. So, yes, I can make it. Let's go. So we did, you know, and we met Bob back there, and that's when we kind of sat down and discussed what we would do and how we would do it. And Dennis and I both were very skeptical, and we both had had this idea, well, let's, you know, we'll try this out. You know, let's go with it. 
and be completely open to it. Mm-hmm. But if it turns out to be a bunch of, you know, you know, hand, you know slate of hand tricks and other stuff, you know, if, if it doesn't turn into anything, you know, we're out of here, you know, as soon as we establish that as for a fact. Mm-hmm. So we both kind of felt that way, that this was an adventure, and uh, we didn't know whether it would lead anywhere or not. So we were open to it, but we were probably... You know, eighty percent skeptical and twenty percent open to it. You know, it was that sort of thing. And, <laughs> okay. uh, so that was uh, that was kind of the, the introduction. And from then on, we started coming out regularly. And Bob started, uh, you know, teaching us how to experience this larger consciousness system. Mm-hmm. And we were, you know, we were trying. We tried very hard to uh, follow what he said. And the big thing in both of our minds is: is this real? Right. You know, is, is what we were experiencing real? Because he led us in a kind of a, uh, I don't know what we call it. It was kind of a, uh, a, uh, a meditation where he would kind of guide us, a guided meditation to certain sure. things. And he'd take us up to a certain point, and then he'd let us go. He says, all right, go experience and tell me what it is you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. And we had these microphones that were just above our lips, and we were lying in these isolation chambers that were mm-hmm. acoustically isolated, electromagnetically isolated. Right. And uh, we would, as we experienced things, we'd tell him over, the, over, the, over this mic, and he would record it mm-hmm. on tapes, and then we'd discuss it later, and he'd kind of help us understand what it was or whatever. But he didn't really give us a lot of direct direction. It's mm-hmm. not like... He was the guru who was giving us instruction and telling us how to do this. Mm-hmm. He basically was taking us to the edge of the brink, told us to jump, mm-hmm. and then let him know what happened you know, on, on the way down. So mm-hmm. he was very careful not to lead us anywhere because he didn't want us to just be following his lead. Right. That or give you some data, right? He, that yeah, he had no data. interest in that. Yeah, he right. didn't want to lead us someplace and then have us parrot back to him, you know, what he, what he led us to see. Sure. So that was of no interest to him whatsoever. That's not what he wanted this lab for, and, and that wasn't what it was about. So he'd always help us get to a good altered state, and then he just, you know, wouldn't tell us anymore. He'd say, tell me what you see. And he didn't, he didn't uh, judge any of the things we saw. He just kind of discussed in general. Everything was very in general. So mm-hmm. we didn't get really any specific guidance from, from uh, Bob, okay. but we got his presence and the steadiness of going out two or three times a week, you know, every week. Right. So it was that kind of thing. And uh, it was up to us to actually get there on our own within okay. that environment. So that was what it was like. And for several years, it was, you know, Dennis and I and others. There were other people also, that was coming out to uh, the lab, and that he was he was uh, putting on he was giving the same sort of instruction to, I believe. Uh, but he kept us all separate. Dennis and I were a team, and actually we worked with his, his stepdaughter Nancy Lee and his other uh, stepdaughter uh, Penny. We worked with them, but he kind of kept us isolated because he knew we were going to talk to each other, you know, because we worked in the same place. But he didn't want us to be. Um, uh, I don't know, uh, mingling our ideas and thoughts and what we were thinking mm-hmm. with the other people coming because he wanted us to get there on our own. He didn't want a group think kind of emerging right. out of the people that were coming to his lab, you know, that, oh, I saw this, and then everybody sees it right, you know, right, right. the next day. So he was real careful about his, you know, he, he didn't want to lead. He just wanted us to, you know, to, to do it on our own, and we eventually did. It was a, you know, it took some time, but eventually Dennis and I 
had accumulated a lot of statistics on data we had gathered, things we had done, and done them over and over and over again. And the statistics said what we had seen, what we were able to accomplish could not have been just by chance. Sure. So we realized, just like me doing the code, I knew that wasn't chance because I couldn't just by chance pick up a sheet with 30,000 lines of code on it and pick out the 10 lines that had errors in them. Right. You know? That wasn't something you do by chance. If you can do that, then obviously there's something real going on. Right. And we had this sense of there was obviously something real going on, but what? And, you know, was it, was it just, you know, it, it was an intellectual thing. Sure. It wasn't, at a, it wasn't at a gut level. It was just in our intellects. We realized it. But for me, anyway, it was an experience I had with Dennis that then uh, we both went out together mm -hmm. and we had this adventure together and it turned out that uh, we really were together as evidenced by the tape of the two right. of us talking during mm -hmm. this experience. And that was the last that I carried around this idea of, of is it real? You know, right. after that, it was no longer is it real. The, the evidence that was there all along and then this final experience which was so dramatic that there was no way to construe it as to be anything other than it was, uh, from then on it was just how does it work? Sure. What's going on? What's, What's the, the mechanism? mechanism? You know, what can I do? What are the limitations? Why am I experiencing this? You know, how does it, how does this other reality interact and connect with this reality? What's the, what's, you know, what's the interaction? Because there was definitely an interaction between the two. So I was kind of the group, being the physicist, I was sort of the theorist because right. that's where my natural inclination took me is to sure. understand the theory. Mm -hmm. Dennis was more uh, the engineer because he was an engineer, so he was more of the parts and pieces, pragmatic, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the experiments we did and, uh, and that kind of thing, building, building the equipment and, sure. and whatever. And uh, we worked very well together. So then over the next couple of years after that, you know, I was uh, doing theory, right? And uh, eventually, it got to to be where Dennis and I became trainers instead of researchers. When what we were doing became so popular that there were literally hundreds of people who wanted to to partake in this uh, experience that Bob had been able to produce, really with Dennis and I. Sure. He let it, he let it be known kind of through his network. You know, we've kind of got some technology that'll help you, uh, you know, experience this larger conscious system. And suddenly, hundred people had their hands in the air saying, "I want to do it! I want to do it!" And then Dennis and I were busy, you know, helping these other people through it and building equipment that would do 20 people at a time and mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And then both of us kind of kind of uh, left after maybe five, six, seven years. Now I was associated with. With, it wasn't the Monroe Institute then, that happened later. You know, this, was, this was before there was such a thing as Monroe Institute. But uh, I was on their board of directors for another decade or so after that. And, uh, you know, every time I'd go back into that area where uh, my wife and I had family, I'd always make a stop in to see Bob, you know, and Nancy. And so it's not like we just left and never saw each other again. But I stopped coming out to the lab so regularly. I had trained other people. Dennis and I had trained other people to do the things that we had done. Mm -hmm. We made all the equipment that they needed to, to do that. And uh, we kind of went on our own way. But when you start down this road, it's not a road that you can say, gee, that was fun. I, you know, <laughs> let's go on and do something else now. Oh, you know? Exactly. Yeah. The, as soon as I realized that I could debug computer code, mm -hmm. I was in for life. You know, I knew there was something there. And I was going to explore it, 
period. And then I got to, to this connection with Bob, which gave me now a, a, a great platform from which to explore it. And um, so that's what I did. And 30, 35 years later, I thought I understood it well enough to write it down. And, and that's what my books are. Well, and, and, that, and that part you were reading is the early on part to kind of just say how it is that a physicist got into this. You know, right. I wanted to just give the reader a little bit about who I was when I began, you know, and how did I end up, uh, you know, being a, a consciousness researcher and a, and a physics, let's um, say, applied physicist mm -hmm. all, at the same, all at the same time. Those, those, to most people's minds, are incompatible fields. You know, sure. people who do one don't do the other. Right. And uh, here I was doing both and doing them for a long time. Now, when you when you were talking about your um, ability to see the code, would you think that that would be considered uh, the removal of the the conscious brain and letting the subconscious take over? Because in books that I've read before, are obviously our subconscious mind or our subconscious um, computer is much more efficient and much more um, much more powerful than our conscious mind. So would it be would it be uh, allowing the subconscious to basically drive the ship and to to see the lines of code as one and say, oh, there's the error right there? What would you what would you say um, from your perspective? Is it is it the connection with the consciousness system, or is it pushing away your conscious brain that gets in the way of of all these different things with its own tricks and and quirks that it has in order to stabilize your reality and letting your subconscious take over? What would you say that that was okay. in order to uh, allow you to to do the coding so easily? Okay, well that that opens up a whole bunch of uh, whole yep. bunch of subjects we could talk about, but anyway, uh, I thought that there was that this information of where the errors were in my code existed. I mean, there were errors in my code because sure. the code didn't run when I put it in. It said there, are, you know, and the way these these computers work, they would get to the first error, it would find an error, it would bomb off the system, and that was it. Right. So it's not like it said, okay, we'll just move on and see if there's any more errors. Sure. It only found the first error and, you know, wait till next week to see if you could find the second error. Okay. You know, that kind of thing. So I knew that there were errors in the code. Mm -hmm. And I knew that information was theoretically available in the sense that they're all the cards. And, you know, the code's supposed to do a certain thing and there's reasons why it can't. Correct. Somehow I was able to access that information and I didn't see it as a subconscious because why would the subconscious know that? Sure. Why would my subconscious be aware of what was in my code? Because I, it was remembering all the code that I had seen and, and uh, actually noticed the, the errors even though I didn't get them up in my conscious mind. I guess somebody could, could uh, make that sort of model. But I saw it more as a, as a there's data. Somehow I'm accessing the data. I don't know how. And I wanted to build a model that would describe how I did that. So I didn't think that it was that it was subconscious. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't think that it was necessarily had anything to do with brains or anything else. Sure. I just dealt with you know as a scientist, I try to cut it down to the to minute sort of the minimalist idea. You know, you don't want to make any assumptions. As soon as you make assumptions, like there even is a subconscious, you've already made an assumption that you right. have a conscious and a subconscious, and now you're working from inside another model, Correct. and you don't want to do that. So I just said there's data out there somewhere, and I'm accessing that data. And that was kind of where I left it, because I didn't want to go into that. Now later, I, I kind of realized that, of course, that, that the intellect is a very limiting factor. You know, your intellect, all your beliefs, your fears, yep. your ego, all that stuff limits 
what your intellect, which is what we call our conscious mind, you know, that's what we think. That's all the stuff we can think about. Cultural biases, all those. Yeah, all that stuff is in there. And I knew that that was a very big limitation. Okay. And that this was going outside, obviously, outside of the intellect. Mm -hmm. Okay. That, that was that was an obvious thing from the beginning. This is not an intellectual thing. Okay. It's it's some other avenue other than intellect. And I I've come to realize since then that there really is no such thing. There is no any, there isn't anything that's fundamental that is a subconscious. Okay. There really isn't a subconscious. Okay. I break it up a little differently and and it's not just a it's not just different words for the same thing. But I talk about that uh, you know we have the uh, the intellectual level and then you have the being level. Okay. But breaking that up into an intellect and a subconscious isn't quite right. The being level is a is a little different than that. The being level is who you are and what you are at the core. Okay. You see? And so would that be your thoughts, feelings, or your, your feelings, emotions, your reactions? Or it, has, it has all of that. At your being level, you have a logical component. You have a rational component at the being level. Okay. You have a feeling, you know, an emotional component okay. at the being level. You have, you have basically all of that. At the intellectual level, mm -hmm. you only have the thinking component. That's what it is, the intellectual level. Right. And that thinking component is very limited by its okay. beliefs and fears and, and the rest of it. Sure. At the being level, it's just who and what you are, all of your experience. Now, there's also, there's also fear and things down there, but it's not limited. So your intellectual level is limited by that fear. Right. Your being level contains that fear. Okay. Not that it's limited by it. Right. It, it's not a... It's still know, there underlying, but it's not the, the, the limiting factor that fear can be when, when pushed right. by um, push buttons by... Um, like uh, existential forces like a bear attack or something like that, right? Exactly. So okay. you, at the being level, you have all these things, but they're not necessarily limiting. They're just there. Okay. It's just a big hodgepodge pile of everything that you are, all of your caring and love and, and you know, all your fear mm -hmm. and beliefs and everything are just piled in there. It is what and who you are. And it also has, a, a, uh, I'm not going to say an intellectual part, but a rational part. Okay. You know, at the being level, you can think at the being level. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, uh, you can uh, be rational at a being level as well. But it's not the rationale part doesn't dominate the rest of it. You see, and the rest of it doesn't limit the rationale part. It's just, okay. it's just all there. So that's kind of your being level. It's what you are mm -hmm. at, that, at that level. Now, if you don't have any fear, if you are let go of all of your ego, all of your fear, no beliefs, so here you are, fearless, you know, a being of, of love, at least as much as you can be, then what you find out is that there is no intellectual level being level. You're just one whole person. Sure. You have an intellect, and and you have all the things that you are, but there's complete transparency between the two. Okay. It's not like you have this uh, intellectual level or the the ego, and then the, the id, which is the, the subconscious right. mm -hmm. that uh, that uh, is outside your reach. Right. Everything's inside your reach. Right. So you're just one whole thing. It's the same. It's it's in the same line as saying you're not left brain. You're not right brain, you're whole brain. Everything in the brain. So you have this intellect, but at the same time you have this intuition and other, uh, you know, other skills besides the intellect, and they all work together. They're not competing or one's not, you know, limiting the other uh, at all. They both, they all work together. So when you, 
when you no longer have the fear, mm -hmm. then you really don't have a subconscious. Okay. You're just conscious. So would that be And you're aware of all that. You're aware of your instincts. You're aware of your drives. You're aware of your fears. You're aware of all that stuff because, well, you're not aware of your fears. You don't have any fear, right, which was our going in point. You know, you're aware of your emotional state okay. and, and that you're just kind of a whole awareness of everything. Mm -hmm. But as you, have, as you have fear now, now the fear causes the intellect a problem because the intellect has to deal with that fear. Right. Right. So you the intellect doesn't like it. to deal with that fear, so the intellect kind of pushes that down and creates an ego as the buffer between it and the fear. Okay. So that's kind of, now you have a subconscious. Now you have a part of you that your intellect can't interact with. It's beneath your conscious. You know, they call it a subconscious. Sure. But, so that's kind of the way my model is. So a subconscious is really a pathological uh, result. It's the result of fear. It's if you don't have the fear, then you don't have the subconscious. You're just a whole aware person. So why did Freud think that uh, you know it was a it was a part of everybody? Because fear is a part of everybody. Correct. Correct. So if fear is a part of everybody, and you and Freud was, you know, he didn't just make this up because he had a dream or you know because he out of theory. He made this up by looking at people Correct. and examining. He was very much a a uh, you know an, an empiricist. In sure. that sense, mm -hmm. it was an empirical theory, not just one he made up because it sounded good right. or because there was some theory to back it up. So all the people he looked at had fear. They were fear-based, as most everybody is. Right. They all had a subconscious, and he noticed that everybody had this, had this consciousness and a subconsciousness, and he saw the dynamics between them, right. and he labeled that normal. Right, and then the, okay. the ego and everything else was created from that because he had to basically substantiate those claims because of the fear that was found in society and then pushed down to, to the people in society, and they just observed it, correct? Exactly. So he, he observed that, and it is normal. It is normal to have a subconscious, sure. but that doesn't mean it's healthy or natural to being, you know, to being a being. If you don't have the fear, if you outgrow your fear, then you, you, your consciousness covers everything. Your being level, your intellectual level are all working to one, one thing. The, the, uh, the rational part of your being level is now the same as your intellect. Okay. So in other words, both of those things just kind of meld together and become one, one thing. So that's, I don't know whether you wanted to go there, but no, anyway, no, that, that's, that's just a little bit. It's, it's a different model of the mind. You know, Ford right. did a mo I mean, uh, Freud did a model of the mind that right. he had the ego, the id, which is the subconscious, mm -hmm. and uh, then, then there was the superconscious, right, the super which, which was your ability to care about others. That right. was the caring.